0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So Ascension Sunday, there's a lot of things we think about. It's interesting because when thinking of Ascension, a lot of times we can think about the absence of Jesus. We can think about how it's the time when Jesus floated up in the air, even kind of how that. That looks, uh, even how that reads, into like outer space to leave earth and, and reign in heaven. And you see this imagery in paintings where uh, Jesus' feet is dangling from the air and the disciples watch in amazement. And some of my favorite paintings are the ones where it looks like Jesus is waving by, You know, but he's really doing the holy symbol thing that they do in paintings. But it, it looks like he's like, bye y'all. Um, and that's what he would have said probably was bye y'all. Um, and, and this is how we interpret taken up into heaven, like a kind of a superhero movie. And it's this idea that that Jesus has somehow evacuated the world, even though in Acts and in the story that Aaron read out of the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a precious Bible that we've read for years, we give to our kiddos, um, especially during baby dedication, we give it to all of our kiddos, that Jesus, uh, the ascension isn't about Jesus' absence, it's about Jesus' royal glorification. It isn't that Jesus evacuates the world, it's that Jesus ascends to reign over the world, to fill the world in all things. And a lot of times, if we're not careful, when we read Scripture, we could almost miss the ascension as something important to the Christian calendar. Which I mean, it's just got a little point of text, right? It's just a little section. But the early church decided that in the Christian calendar, there needed to be a day to remember the ascension, because they understood that the ascension... Has not just theological implications, but the ascension has deep, deep spiritual formation implications, meaning that the implications of ascension can form us. This isn't some lackluster event that we can miss when we read Scripture. And so, Paul, it's so important that Paul said this. If you have, you want to scan the QR code, all the notes are in there for you. Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18. He says, I pray that the perception of your mind may be enlightened. Everybody say enlightened. enlightened. Enlightened so you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the glorious riches of His inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power to us who believe, according to the working of His vast strength. He demonstrated this power. So Paul is like, you hear all that language like, Powerful, vast, strong. And he's like, and he demonstrated this in the Messiah by raising him from the dead, which we understand power of resurrection. That's just not where Paul ends. He says, and seating him at his right hand. Everybody say right hand. At his, y'all got to wake up. At his right hand. Everybody say right hand. right hand. All right, all right. We serve some quality coffee, y'all. At his right hand in the heavens, in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, and here's the key, not only in this age, so he's talking about this age too, he's talking about now, so he's talking about Caesar, Caesar doesn't have a title bigger than Jesus now. Like a resurrected Jesus who walks around earth is one thing. A resurrected Jesus who ascends into the heavens and sits at the right hand of the Father, right hand meaning powerful hand, sitting at the right hand of the Father, the right hand of God, is not just some resurrected zombie savior. This now is a whole different category of Lord. He's not Lord elect, he is Lord now. He's not king to come, he's king now. And his title is far above every other title that could be given in this age, and Paul says, "and the age to come. And he put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything, and here's the language, for the church. Everybody say, for the church. For the church. This gets back to that God in control thing we talked about last week. Head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things. In every way. See if we end the story of Jesus by saying. And then Jesus resurrected. And went off to heaven. But someday he'll come back and bring with him God's, heaven, uh, God's kingdom. Then we could all too easily believe that we're free to run our own lives how we want. If he's just going to come back. And so right now Jesus resurrected. Now he's sitting in heaven. And he's chilling. And everything is just working as it's working. Because the Holy Spirit is at work in the people of God. Like we could just settle back. And we could reduce Jesus from being this eternal Lord seated at God's right hand in the heavens far above every ruler, authority, power, and dominion and every title given not only in this age and the age to come. We can reduce this eternal Lord to Lord-elect to be sworn in at His return but He's Lord of Lords right now. He's been seated at the right hand of God right now which puts Him in absolute authority over all things right now and the ascension of Jesus as Lord and King includes His power but it is less about His power less about the strength of His power and more about the scope of His presence. And that is why we can always say that Christ is as close to us as what? The breath in our lungs. Because He's ascended Lord. And what Paul says is He fills all things. There's no place you can go where Christ isn't. And that has to bring some sense of hope that has to bring some sense of assurance because not only is there any place you can't go where God isn't found in the Christ who reigns, there's also then no authority that you don't have as a person who's filled with the Spirit of God. You have authority. You have victory. You have the Holy Spirit of God, the power of God inside of you. You can proclaim some things to be true in this world. You can have the power to do the things that God has empowered you to do because Christ fills all things. And when you bring your Holy Spirit-empowered presence into the Holy Spirit-empowered presence of someone else, everything can change. But we just don't always believe it. We have an easier time believing in Jesus and less believing Jesus. And if we confess that Jesus is Lord... We don't have to wonder where Christ is. And it may not feel this way because the circumstances surrounding my life may say otherwise. Deep sadness may still be my battle. My relationship with someone may still be broken. My finances may still seem thin. My job may still be a misery. My children may still be a mess. The loneliness I feel may still drain my joy. The sickness I'm experiencing may still make me weak. But that is why the church has Ascension Sunday to remind us in our calendar so we can't miss it. If we miss it every other time to remind us that we cannot miss that Christ has ascended and He's been glorified as Lord of all and His, exhausted pres- his exalted presence fills our exhausted lives and fills things in all ways. He is in all of it with us and sometimes we forget the question is, do we believe in him or will we believe him? Receive his power, trust him, remain loyal to him. Even if the facts on the ground say otherwise, remember that we're still a royal child of God, that King Jesus has head over everything for the church, that we are the body of Christ in the fullness of the king whose presence and authority fills all things in every way. One of the reasons we need each other is because when Christ is Lord of me and Christ is Lord of you, the presence of Christ becomes thicker in my life. But we need each other more than just one day a week, which is why the early church did what? I know we've talked about this three weeks in a row, but what did the early church do? Met every day. day. Twice a day. day. You were paying attention, (laughs) Dean. Look at you. Look at you, Dean. Dean's like, Jesus, too. Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. Yeah, met every day, twice a day, prayed three times a day, because they knew that if Christ couldn't be found anywhere, Christ could be found among the people. Because if Christ didn't reign over Caesar, Christ would surely reign over the people. Does that make sense? And when Caesar says he's son of God, and then has the power that almost makes him feel like he is, they remembered the power of the Christ who actually is. They remembered that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God and has all power and authority, as Paul said, far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion. And so they knew that they had to lay down their idols because in the ascension of Jesus, they realized that their idols had no power. They, had, they could refuse to live in denial. Denial of their trials and of their sufferings and the brokenness in life because in the ascension of Jesus Christ fills all things. And Christ is never far off. Christ is never absent. Christ is never separate separate from you. Christ is always with you. And, And with all of that, they knew that if Christ is the head of the church, then they have become citizens of His government, of His kingdom and have been given the right to express and embody His power and authority. Beloved, how are you embodying, how are you expressing the power and authority of the risen and ascended Christ in your life? How are you embodying and expressing the power and authority of the ascended Christ in your work? How are you living as though you believe That the Christ is the ascended king. Because not even the governments of this world are free to ignore Jesus as ascended Lord and choose to run the world however they want, which is always violence and self-interest. The reign of sin and death may have influence over the world and sway over the world, but the reign has been broken. Victory is broken. Victory is ours. Victory has been given. And we know that what God has given, the world can't take away. So what is Ascension Sunday to you? Just another day with a a byline of Scripture. It's just, hey, Jesus, Jesus, you know, Jesus in heaven. Because in the biblical times, when they used the language of in the heavens, and when they used the language of ascended, that was royal language. That's why that language was important. To our kids, we have to liken it unto roller coasters. But in the biblical narrative, when they heard the word ascended, It meant royal exaltation. It was, and I know I say this often, but it was a political word. And it meant a political thing. Because when Caesar is in charge and Rome is the power of the world, the Christians need to remember who holds the true power. The Christians need to remember who has true authority. The Christians need to remember that all of that authority and power now resides inside of the Christian life and is manifest among the Christian church. And when we forget that, we come together and remember that. We remember it around Eucharist. We remember it in the songs. We remember it in the confessions. When we say, we are chosen descendants. What else? We are A royal priesthood. We are citizens of a holy nation. We are gods to proclaim the mighty deeds. And two, that's why we begin every gathering there. And so when we get together and we begin every gathering with that liturgy, don't give yourself permission to blow through it. Settle in and receive it. Drink it in. Because when we leave this place, society's going to try to convince us that Christ doesn't fill all things. Society will try to convince us that it holds power, and it's going to feel that way. But the ascension, and Ascension Sunday reminds us that the idols of this world have no power, and we no longer have to live in denial. We can hold on to... Fully and completely. We can press through. We can press on. Because even though it doesn't feel like victory is ours. Victory is ours. I may be pressed down. But I am not crushed. I may be in despair. But I am not destroyed. That is the word of Paul. That is the implication of gospel. I may feel alone. But I am not alone. So as we gather In this hour and a half, we are formed by the society's liturgy for every other hour to believe otherwise than what this one little hour and a half can do to try to reorient our lives toward the one who knows us best and what? Loves us most. To the Christ who is as close to us as? And honestly, if that's all we ever remembered every Sunday and I became the most repetitive preacher known to mankind, I'm actually okay with that so long as we actually live this way right? I mean, can we live this way? Can we live in such a way that we embody and express the ascended Christ who is as close to me as the breath in my lungs and when I don't can I call somebody and have them remind me that I am who God says I am not who my boss says I am or my spouse says I am or my paycheck says I am or my lack of whatever says I am or those fears of scarcity say that I am can I have somebody in my life who reminds me of whose I am and therefore of who I am so that I live my day looking for the Christ who is with me to practice the presence of God to know There's no place I can go where Christ isn't To know that the power and authority of God Is always within grasp If only I learn how to live in that thing And that even the worst thing the world has to offer Which is death Doesn't have the power to overtake the power of the Christ Who not only has resurrected But who ascends as Lord over that That can change things Because we live in a society Where there are too many people Who have seen and been told otherwise not just by society, but by the church. Where we haven't lived as though we believe what Jesus said about love a neighbor and love an enemy. Instead, we've made enemies out of neighbors. And when they didn't fit our categories, we had something to say to them in the name of the truth. And we've caused hurt. And just for a moment, and not to make us feel bad, because all of us sometimes feel bad, but do you know somebody? I'll ask now that the room's fuller. Do you know somebody? Do you care about somebody who has wants nothing to do with the church for reasons for which have nothing to do with the Christ, but everything to do with the church? Raise your hand up. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand here, but has it also sometimes been you? I know. Now there's a lot of reasons for that. Many of which Charles isn't going to be able to unpack with us, and many of which time would not allow. But there is an antidote. And there's a lot of ways that it gets impracticed, that it gets in flesh, that it gets embodied, that it gets practiced in our lives. But here's one thing that I'm learning to be true. If I live my life and practice the presence of God, as best I can in a day-to-day life and learn to trust that there is no place I can go where Christ isn't, then I will come to see that Christ wants me whole more than I want to be made whole. Christ wants me well more than I want to be made well. And Christ wants the same exact thing for every neighbor I meet. And so I don't have to coerce. I don't have to even persuade I only have to do one thing, and that is the hard work of love. And it's when we forget that the greatest command is more important than the Great Commission, because Jesus never called the Great Commission great. You thought about that, right? The only thing Jesus called great was the greatest command. We're the ones who called the Commission great. If we love, then people will know. What did Jesus say? If you love, people will know you're my what? Begins with a D. Disciples. We'll work on that one. So let's talk about love. And let's talk about love in a society where trauma is real. Come on, Charles. Y'all, y'all may remember. Uh, raise your hand. Just in, just embarrass him for a minute. Raise your hand if you do remember Charles from years ago. Okay, good. So, oh, well, good. More people than we thought. Um, so Charles, if you're new and you don't know who Charles is, Charles is from... Uh, well, I'll let you introduce yourself. Why don't you introduce yourself?
1: Uh, good morning. I'm Charles. <laughs> uh, I, I uh, am from uh, Texas. Please don't hold that against me. Uh, I have worked there for uh, worked and lived there for 15 years in the Dallas, Texas area with a church called Storyline that we uh, helped to start. And um, Fred and I met initially through the the church planning ministry that helped us uh, get started. And Fred and I did school together. I, that was your fault. You inspired fair. that. No, yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. No. Uh, I've been married um, 21 years to Julie. We have three kids, um, Ryan and Chloe and Charlie. And... Um, I, I guess I should say, I I am a fourth generation, I don't know, I'm a fourth generation minister or pastor, and my, my religious tradition is in the Church of Christ side of the Stone Campbell tradition, acapella uh, Churches of Christ. So my great-grandfather was a preacher, and my grandfather was a preacher, and my dad is a preacher, and I'm like a I'm a a radical, you know, I'm, uh, part of the reason I'm a radical, uh, I think is because of, well, I, uh, you may know this, um, you may not, but, uh, some churches of Christ can be pretty fundamentalist, pretty legalistic, uh, pretty, um, pretty life draining and not life giving and uh, i think part of my radicalism is i experienced some of that some of that harm Um, my my grandfather when i was in my 20s uh, disowned my side of the family over some doctrinal differences that in the scheme of things i don't think are really big but they were big to him and uh, it created this huge schism in our family and I haven't seen members of that side of the family for almost 20 years now. And I carry those wounds with me for a long time. And I think part of my imagination desire for being a pastor and forming a community of faith is to create the hospitable um, spaces to facilitate life-giving, grace-wielding grace, uh, environments that I... Was so hungry for, but sometimes didn't receive uh, in my younger years. So I don't know if you wanted me to get in all, into all of that, but no, no, um, I, no, I did because that's a little bit about me.
0: No, because it's important um, that as we talk about church hurt and a category now in trauma studies called religious trauma, it's important as we contrast what Charles is going to offer with the ascension of Jesus and that we see how um, a lot of times the hurts that the church causes is because we have, oftentimes, a diseased imagination. Everybody say diseased imagination. Disease.
1: Okay, diseased imagination.
0: It's, it's just not, it's not, it's not healthy enough. We, we have a hard time seeing what God is inviting us to see in Jesus, and so we go with what we see, and we cause these harms in many different ways. And I wanted Charles to, to speak to this, because he grew up in institutional church stuff, um, as I did. And our stories are very similar. My granddad um, won't talk to me anymore uh and barely talks to my own dad uh and we have to find out he's sick by other means because he won't talk to us because I now go to a church that has instruments um and so does my dad my dad's an elder in a church with instruments because I grew up in actually a more conservative wing of the acapella churches of Christ that Charles did and yet there's um there's a lot of hurt there uh and a lot of angst uh and a lot of I mean, I might even say in some ways, uh, some spiritual abuse. Uh, and so, Charles, in, when you left the institutional church and you went and you started, you started a house church movement, you almost went to another extreme, which is why I think he would say radical. Uh, Charles doesn't introduce himself as radical. I think he's just making a contrast of um, that he went from this church-building life and this one-time-a-week kind of church-centered Christianity to this house church understanding of Christianity that was really going to welcome all people for real and to do so in Dallas, Texas, as you did that and as you started paying more attention to people in your neighborhoods, people who were at home on Sundays rather than in church buildings, what did you learn about their relationship with Christ and relationship with the church mm-hmm. in, like, the buckle of the Bible Belt mm-hmm. of the United States of America?
1: Right. Um, <coughs> so, uh, you know, part of the way, as Fred has mentioned, part of the way we've organized and storyline is in these— house churches or little spiritual communities that identify uh, a neighborhood or a network of relationships that they want to be present among, um, to show up with, to look for what God's up to and to, to join in. Not unlike what you all in WCC uh, do together here in this community. Uh, and one of those places, uh, we had just moved to a new neighborhood and we joined up with a, a crew of, of people to be spiritual community together. And part of our discernment was, okay, what's, what's the neighborhood or network of relationships that we want to be present with together? And so we went to different places in our, our new neighborhood, to the park on a Sunday morning where lots of folks hung out. We went um, to an art festival. And we went to, uh, to our local bar in the neighborhood that's attached to this big movie theater where they had board games every sunday night like really serious strategy like left brain software engineer kinds of kinds of board games which is not me so i was i was intimidated you know we go in and uh i i am not i'm not sure what to expect and we're immediately welcomed in uh the the host that night could tell we were new you know we had the the new person look uh it was like Hey, are you here for board games? Yes. Have you played a lot of board games? No. Would you like me to teach you how to play a board? Yes, please. We sit down, and I mean, it was just the most gracious welcome. And that was the beginning of saying, hey, there, there's something in this welcome from the Spirit of God for us. We need to, we need to come back. So we started going back and going back, and before we know it, we're we're three years into relationships with with this board gaming network uh, where they have invited us into their homes and um, we've invited them into our homes it's not us and them anymore it's just us we're a part of the fabric of this broader board gaming community about that time i was in doctoral work uh, and learning these skills for ethnography maybe fred uses that word sometimes not here here. okay Uh, it's fancy, it's fancy Sociologists speak for listening to people and asking them questions and learning the realities around you. So I, I wanted to use some of these, these tools I was learning among my board gaming crew to learn what, what makes this community really tick and grow and thrive. And I, I didn't have really like spiritual interest per se in getting feedback. I just wanted to kind of learn the culture of this group. And so we interviewed about 10 of our friends And And
0: um, formal interviews, so like like formal interviews. So this wasn't. I want to be clear. Did you hear what Charles said when he said we went there and we we felt that there was something about that the Holy Spirit was in the welcome that they gave us. So notice Mm -hmm. that Charles and storyline. A lot of people, a lot of some of you may think, and I want to go ahead and dispel that that they went in trying to evangelize this community. Now you'd have to know Charles, and you'd have to know that the theologies here are very similar that we believe that God is already at work in some place. We don't bring God into those spaces. Why? Because Christ fills what? All things, right? That's the ascension. Christ fills all things. So wherever you go, not only is Christ with you, Christ is already at work because Christ loves people more than we do. Right? So a lot of times Christians think evangelism is going out with a track and a bullhorn telling people about a God who, who's not there, as if we're the ones who bring God. That's why I always kind of get kind of sick in my stomach when we're like, oh, we took God out of schools. And please. Um... So so it's like you know so God is God is already there and so I want you to know that they didn't go in armed with tracks, Like when Charles says we went in to be with people, like that's 100% mm-hmm. what they were doing. As a people of God mm-hmm. to be with people to discover what God is doing outside of traditional mm-hmm. church spaces. Does that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I just
1: want you to make sure you capture
0: that mm-hmm. so that the rest of everything else he says makes more sense. You can see the motive of that. Yeah.
1: So get uh the the idea of being a guest is a really important frame for us. That we we enter our neighborhood as guests, and guests always pay attention to the rules of the house, as it were. Um, it's not our territory. We don't set the parameters. We go in and we learn the house rules, and we try to be good guests. We ask permission. You know, sometimes we learn by fumbling around and and um, stumbling upon. Implicit, implicit expectations within the communities we're in, but that is our posture—to be humble, to be humble guests. And so it's only like it's several years into relationship and friendship, and shared community life together that these interviews, with informed consent of course, emerge. And as we're doing these uh, interviews, I'm just asking, you know, what what's making this community significant. And because I'm a pastor, I'm a spiritual person, all of my friends in the sport gaming community know that about me and about this little group of folks that is a spiritual community kind of in their midst. Um, I asked one question at the end of our interviews that was something like, is there anything spiritual or transcendent to you about your experience in this group? And most of my friends in this board gaming group are self-described atheists or agnostic. And so, predictably, they said, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure how to answer that. Uh, I don't really have, the, I don't operate with those categories. But what, the, what almost all of them said next, after that, was, can I tell you the terrible experiences I've had in religion? Uh, and it was stunning to me. I... I'm almost to a person. It was so widespread, even in this small group of interviews that we did. It surfaced all of that harm that I'd experienced, and I thought, I I have to lean in here. There's something to pay attention to. There is something to learn here. I didn't have the language for it at the time, but what I was encountering was experiences of spiritual abuse and religious trauma in my neighborhood, among my friends and my neighbors.
0: And, and so, you know, Charles is the guy who wrote the book that we're going to read for this next month in our Wilder Minds reading cohort. All the books are here. Um, because this experience changed the direction of his writing. Y'all all know I took two months off to write, and I'm still writing. Um, I know. I'm glad y'all chuckle because y'all are like, we've been praying for you, man. Get it done, Fred. Get it done. Um, that's, what, that's what our... our professors say to me fairly often that's actually what Charles says to me get it done Fred For crying out loud. and
1: don't blow it that's and don't what blow i said. It.
0: Yeah. <laughs> don't blow it thanks thanks man so, uh, yeah you like that time because that um, real quick let me pause just so y'all know I'm, I'm completely a discouraging presence um, before LaTanya does what she does because she still gets nervous to lead us I'm like don't blow it um, and then anytime Erin does something new that she's not used to doing I'm like don't blow it and I think the first time Natalie ever led us, I looked at Natalie and said, "Natalie," and she, you know, Natalie's as sweet as pot, right now. It's like, "Yes, yes." And I said, "Don't blow it," and she just. <laughs> so that's why Charles is saying the. blow it. Don't, Fre- right.
1: don't blow it is Fred's love language. That's how. <laughs> that's how he expresses affa- of affection. That's how I express yeah. my
0: belief in you. Um, but but it changed this whole a discovery changed the direction of his writing. Um, and where Charles, I think, and I don't want to speak too much for you, but where you were setting out with one idea in mind, because you've been immersed in this context, right? Like this isn't a project; this is actually a reflection of what you've been doing. Now you've discovered something entirely new and taken a total turn in a different direction.
1: Uh, yeah. Which, I mean, the the um, uh, this book, the discoveries of that that those interviews, all of it feels like something that we just just by virtue of being present, just stumbled upon. We've been stumbling into all of this, which I think is a pretty great posture for, um, for being a Christian in the world. Uh, uh, I, the way I love to talk about it is my co-author, Elaine, she talks about the contemplative stance, which is just a way of being Christian in the world that involves these four steps, these four elements of showing up to myself, to God, to my neighbor's, paying attention to myself, to God, to my neighbors, joining in, participating with whatever God is doing in our lives, and then the last uh, element is release the outcomes. I, I don't have to control or manage the outcomes. I just get to show up and pay attention and join in.
0: That sounds a lot like what we talk about, right? Yeah. Show up, pay attention, trust God with the consequences, yep. right? Don't try to manage, coerce, control, just trust God with the consequences of that. Um, so without, I, I want to be mindful, because I asked Charles when we talk about this, I don't, I don't want to open up any hurts and harms some of you carry from your own church hurt, and religious trauma, because your very presence and being a part of our family, and if you're visiting here, just being here today is a sign and a symbol that you're pressing through, and I don't want this to be a space that activates you, um, so, um, and I'm making this plug, not Charles, I want to be clear. So if you want to flesh that out in more detail as to what some of the harms were and, and, and how that flows out, then in all sincerity, like read, read the book so you can hear the story yourselves of those who told their story. But you discovered that there was a lot of hurt and it came from surprising places and yet also from places and in ways that you were familiar with yourself. What are you learning are the movements toward healing? Mm. What are you discovering um, are, to be, are the most healing parts, like how do we as Christians heal from our own experiences of church hurt and religious trauma, and then how do we as Christ followers move toward being a presence that allows other people to heal where we do no harm?
1: Right on. Okay, so let me, let me define my terms really briefly, because I think that creates the context where imagination for healing can make sense, and I'll, and just to reflect theologically a little bit about that, and I, I say that knowing that if you've been a part of this church for any length of time, given that Fred is pastoring here, you probably already have the equivalent of a master's degree in trauma studies, no. <laughs> um, just by virtue of listening to Fred talk <laughs> about ridiculous. it. No. Uh, so I, I'm assuming some knowledge base in the room, but, but two frames that are really important for these experiences Uh, One is the frame of spiritual abuse, and that is very strong language, and intentionally so, because I don't want to minimize the kind of harm that's occurring in religious contexts. And sometimes talking about it as hurt is just not strong enough. Um, So spiritual abuse, uh, I follow a a clinical psychologist who um, left the Mormon church after 40 years, her name Cindy Matthews. She defines spiritual abuse as any abuse or trauma that happens in the name of, of religion or the deity of that religion. So, um, so it's spiritual abuse is distinctive to the degree that it's motivated religiously or spiritually, but it also overlaps with every other form of abuse. Any form of abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, verbal, um, that occurs in a religious setting, in an institutional setting, or in a family that's motivated by religious reasons or, or by theological imagination, there is a layer of spiritual abuse that is at play there. And that's really important to name because it just deepens the impact of the harm when you think that not only has this person done this to me, but also God is behind it. That like adds this transcendent weight to the harm and to the shame that burrows in. Uh, so the, re- the religious trauma piece, you all know about trauma. One way I like to think about trauma is the you know the, it's the imprint of these harmful experiences on our bodies and our brains. So religious trauma is no less somatic. It is no less rooted in our bodies and brains. Religious trauma is the imprint of spiritual abuse or these adverse religious experiences that we carry in our bodies, in our brains, in our minds. Um, I, one of my favorite uh, uh, definitions of trauma is from Gabor Mate, who's a medical doctor and trauma expert. And he says that trauma is what we hold inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. It's what we hold inside when we're not seen or known or heard. And the overwhelm is so great that we feel disconnected and isolated. And, and like, I, I can't do this. I can't survive this. It's what our body does when it intuits that that's the, the reality. Um, so let me shift into some theological imagination, given, given those definition, definitions of trauma, um, it occurred to me, reading, um, reading feminist and womanist and liberation theologians, uh, as I listen to their stories, they speak out of the experiences of so many who have experienced themselves abuse and trauma. They point again and again to the story of Jesus, to his, resurre- to his crucifixion and resurrection story as, a, as this traumatic event in the life of God. Um, that in in Jesus' crucifixion, he experiences uh, religious trauma. He experiences spiritual abuse. He experiences every form and shape of abuse that's ultimately instigated by by diseased theological imagination. That he he's a threat to the religious leaders and to the empire, and so they they remove Jesus because he threatens their power. Uh, to see Jesus as a survivor of, of spiritual abuse and religious trauma, uh, it, it shifts my imagination. Jesus, it means that Jesus sees all of us. Jesus knows what it's like. All of us who have experienced this harm, Jesus knows because uh, he's experienced it too. And what if, what if, if trauma is what happens In the absence of an empathetic witness then then healing comes in the presence Mm. of an empathetic Mm. witness Mm. what if what if jesus is an empathetic witness to the pain that we carry to the pain of our neighbors Mm. so that jesus is in solidarity with us he knows us he sees us and just by virtue of knowing that Jesus sees me and that pain that I'm carrying, and that Jesus has experienced that Himself, it opens up space for that harm to unwind and for it for it to be processed so that I don't carry it in my body and my brain in the same way. I think that's that shift in theological imagination, how we how we understand and imagine God to be and Jesus to be. If God is not an abuser and a traumatizer and behind those terrible things, but rather one who suffers with us, one who is an empathetic witness to our, to our pain, to our abuse, to our trauma, there's something really healing to me about, um, about that good news.
0: Does that make sense to you? Do you remember the Isaiah 53 text where it says, By his wounds we are what? healed. Um, The word trauma comes from the Latin word "traumat," which translates wound. Right? By his trauma. You could literally translate that. By his trauma we are healed. Now, I want to do this just one more time after you've heard what Charles said. Again, and forgive me for asking for the third time, but I want us to see the room. Okay, so raise your hand high if you know someone who you feel has been abused, harmed, hurt by the church. Raise your hands. Okay. Look around. Everybody in the front, particularly front. Sorry, front people, but just look so you can see all the hands. So this conversation matters. Did y'all see that? Like this is more than just Fred doing a thing with another person on Sunday again thing. Um, this, this is not Fred blowing it, hopefully. Um, no, this is, this is opening up space to see um, that there is, there is a way forward there's a way forward in this conversation of religious trauma um, so what happens then uh, like what, what do we what do we do with that like I mean I I see the theological imagination for I asked I mean we all said well, do we see that okay so that's that's beautiful it's meaningful it's right it's good It, it theologically honors the story of God um, as Christ, the, the traumatized and suffering God who overcomes and who is with, what does a church do with that?
1: Take your time, bro. I just I just want to say that I am seeing all of your hands go up. It just grieves me. I'm so grieved by that. For the for folks that you love and know, who have experienced that harm, for folks of uh, for folks in the room who haven't raised your hands for yourselves, but that's a reality that you carry this harm in yourself. Um, I'm grieved. I'm sad by that, and I just want to say I'm so sorry. I'm really I'm so sorry for the pain that you've experienced in church for. Um, ways that your dignity and personhood uh, and the image of God in you has been marred mm. in the name of God. Mm. That's such a horrible violation. Mm. It should never happen in the church. No. And I just, I lament that. Uh, and I I don't want this work to callous me to the grief of that. Uh, and I, actually, I think that 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 is very much a part of the work is that um the the work of the church if jesus is this compassionate and empathetic witness to our pain the work of the church is to join jesus as empathetic witnesses Mm. to the pain of our neighbors i i think it's first it's first to receive jesus witnessing our pain Uh, with empathy and compassion so that our traumas the abuses that we still carry that are locked in there so that those can unwind so that we're not harmful to our neighbors uh, so that we don't pass on the pain that we've experienced but rather that we allow God to transform it. But I think so much of this work is doing the interior work, experiencing healing and that unwinding and processing ourselves so that we can be that for other folks so that we can extend the empathetic and compassionate witness to our neighbor, so that when our neighbors feel secure enough in their relationships with us to tell us the story of what happened, or the things that have happened that make them hate the church or never, go, never want to go back or never want to have anything to do it, rather than being defensive mm-hmm. or feeling like this is a personal attack on me, because it's not, uh, I, can, I can see the harm and hold it and, and tell my neighbor, I'm so sorry that that happened. There's no excuse for that. And I, I grieve that with you. And thank you for honoring me and trusting me enough to share that story with me. Let me tell you, just that posture is so amazingly healing. That is the healing work of God fleshed, in the people of Jesus, in our relationships with our neighbors. And it doesn't fix everything or solve everything. It doesn't manage outcomes. It doesn't, it doesn't magically make disciples. Um, but I believe it is the slow and patient work of God in this world. It is the it is the way that Jesus brings healing into our neighborhoods.
0: I asked a question. Yeah, please.
1: So imagine you're a person on the other side and you're you you have a sense that
0: you might be hurting someone out of your theological imagination so you might be the opposite. Yeah. What's
1: yeah. the signal
0: Wait a minute, I, may have, I, may, I need to put on the brakes here. I'm, I'm speaking in God's name, but I might actually be doing harm. Or I'm, you see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. Yep. What
0: is the thing that people should be watching out for so that they, they end up choosing the
1: right way? That's a great question. Um, so much of my own sensitivities, I think, have been developed um, just by um, listening to the stories of those who have experienced harm. To listen to the um, the ways in which folks experience harm. I'm so sorry. That's my son. Um, he's setting up AV at church in Texas. He's probably, he's reached a, an impasse, I'm sure. Expect another call in about 10 seconds. Sweet. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so listening to the stories of, of, of other folks who are brave to tell their stories so that I can do as much learning um, outside of my real-time relationships to come into those relationships with as healthy of imagination and postures as I can. And I, I think in our relationships with our neighbors, I, I don't think... The possibilities of harm when we have the posture of a guest and a listener are very small. Uh, They're much smaller than if we lead instead with things we feel like we should say. Um, Which, by the way, I mean, trauma um, shuts down the part of our brain that interprets words and concepts and ideas. And so trauma eats our words and our best presentations and our best ideas that we share about God. It eats all of that stuff up for breakfast. Um, so I think another piece of it too is just, I'm, uh, I'm listening. I'm listening to the stories of others. I'm listening to my neighbors. Uh, uh, and I'm also, because of the way that harm manifests in our bodies you know when when i tell somebody that i'm a pastor and i i'm in my context there there is uh at the underbelly of christendom just this wake of harm um so much so that when i'm outside of religious contexts and i tell people i'm a pastor i i can see their body change i i can see them stiffen up uh they might freeze. I mean, like trauma responses right in front of me. Or they they literally may get up and just walk away. Um, and I, I think just paying attention to to my neighbors, to how they're doing, to to how to ha- what their body is telling me, what their nonverbals are telling me in relationships gives me some indication about how this is being received. Even if they don't have the words. Um, to tell me that's a really good question a
0: great question Greg so I want to ask you this because you and I both grew up in a fellowship that was all about the right answers and we both grew up with an understanding of Christianity that we were the truth bearers and that we were to do all things in the name of truth and I've looked back and even in my 13 years here I've looked back, and not only have I been harmed by that, but I've done harm. Like, I know I've done harm. Me too. Um, And uh, I have, uh, you know, I have spent years apologizing to people, right? Like old, old youth group kids, old campus ministry, old adults in churches I was in because of the way I portrayed Christianity, the way I, like, verbalized it. Um, it was harmful languaging, um, not listening, defending, being defensive.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How do those of us who recognize that we haven't been an empathetic presence, mm-hmm. and this needs to be the last thing, and we need to lead us to the table, how do we, um, how do, we move, do the work of repair?
1: Mm.
0: Is that even our work to do?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? Like, how do we make possible repair when we have done some of the wrongs ourselves and our defensiveness and in the name of telling the truth? Mm-hmm. What, do, what do we do about that?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the gospel is good news for those of us who have um, perpetuated harm and done abusive things or traumatizing things uh, but you know part of the way that we come into contact with that good news is the way that we do for any kind of uh, harm or sin or wound that we're involved in to um, we turn from it the language of scripture is repentance I, I don't want to do that anymore I, that's not who I want to be and what's true for all of us is our belovedness that even even on our worst days, We are the beloved of God. And so receiving that, that's part of the healing work for us in recovering from ways that we've been abusive or harmful to others in the past. And, you know, sometimes um, uh, repair can come in um, relationships of folks that we've done that with, where we approach them in a humble posture and we repent and ask for forgiveness to them. Sometimes it's not possible, and we carry that posture of repair forward with us mm. in the lives of other neighbors, mm. and we make our men amends by by being kind and gracious, uh, empathetic and compassionate people in the lives of our neighbors. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's messy. It, you know, there's not a straight line through it all, but there's there's hopeful. There's hopefulness in it.
0: Um,
1: So we're talking about ascension today. And uh, Fred, I appreciated your thoughts about uh, Jesus being the ascended king and that that talking about like how uh, Jesus, his presence covers everything, more than it being about his power. Because I think some some imagination about ascension might be that like okay Jesus is in charge now like win the battle you know t- take over uh, even with the same kind of dominating right. uh, coercive force that we've experienced under empire or you know in our in our cities and countries you know whatever uh, but it, it it occurs to me that. Uh, the ascended Lord is consistent with the ascended Jesus is the same Jesus as the crucified Jesus and the incarnate Jesus, the one who is humble and compassionate and who moves in the world as a, as a vulnerable guest, who moves in the world uh, alongside of those who are suffering and struggling. And so uh, when we... When we come to the table of the ascended King, Jesus, we don't come to the table of one who is now dominant and coercive, now that his power fills everything everywhere. He's the same incarnate and crucified Lord who enters gently as a humble guest, as a vulnerable guest. And and because he knows what it's like, to be abused and traumatized and coerced. We can be confident that when we come to Jesus' table, he would never do that to us. Mm. And here's what's more, to your point about Jesus' rule and presence filling uh, the whole world, part of the way that Jesus does that is through Jesus' people. And so the invitation of the table, this Jesus' table on Ascension Sunday is multiplied It is extended to all of our tables. Our tables, to the extent that we uh, submit ourselves to Jesus' leadership, the spirit of ascension, the spirit of this vulnerable guest, Jesus' table becomes our table. We, We take the table of Jesus with us as we become empathetic witnesses to the pain of our neighbors. And so we come to this table to remind us that uh, Jesus' table, the, the table of the ascended king, is not just here, but it's in your living room. And it, it could be in your neighbor's living room. It could be in the restaurant that you visit or the work coffee table where, where Jesus' table is, is becoming wider and more inclusive and more hospitable, welcoming more and more in because all are welcome at the table. So come to the table and receive. be received by the Ascended King.
0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.